G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Ours is an age of liberation. Uh, John Stott, the late John Stott, he was writing this in 1979. Um, but I think it still holds good for today, doesn't it? It's still true today. Ours is an age of liberation. And anything savouring of oppression is deeply resented and strongly resisted. How are Christians to react to this modern mood, he asks. Our initial reaction to these liberation movements, I do not hesitate to say, should be one of positive welcome. For we have to agree that women in many cultures have been exploited, being treated like servants in their own home, that children have often been suppressed and squashed, not least in Victorian England, in which they were supposed to be seen and not heard, and that workers have been unjustly treated, being given inadequate wages and working conditions and an insufficient share in responsible decision-making, not to mention the appalling injustices and barbarities of slavery and the slave trade. Ours is an age of liberation. We who name Christ's name, he goes on, need to acknowledge with shame that we ourselves have often acquiesced in the status quo and so helped to perpetuate some forms of human oppression instead of being in the vanguard of those seeking social change. But when we come to a passage like Ephesians 5, our passage for today, brothers and sisters, and in fact this is why I've chosen it for today, when we come to a passage like today, we hear language that gosh, we find difficult to square with an agenda for liberation, for equality, for dignity, Uh, words like submission, verse 22, wives, words like headship, verse 23, husbands. Um, For instance, says Stott, um, to our minds, the word authority, you know, with reference to husbands, suggests power, dominion and even oppression. We picture the authoritative husband, as a domineering figure who makes all the decisions himself, issues commands and expects obedience, inhibits and suppresses his wife and so prevents her from growing into a mature or fulfilled person. Brothers and sisters, as I said, these few weeks, we're looking at various issues of sexuality or related matters, last week singleness, this week marriage, next week homosexuality and I want to say each of these topics proves prickly, like not just because of our culture but yes, I think particularly in our day and age and our culture. Um, Folks, today I've got a, a fairly modest aim for our sermon, I want to talk about just one aspect of marriage, uh, not just Christian marriage but any marriage Uh, one aspect of any marriage that lifts our eyes to Jesus. So I'm not trying to cover all of the bases, I'm not trying to say absolutely everything that we could say about marriage. Obviously, in the present climate, think about it, gosh, how many directions could you go in with the topic of marriage? In our present climate, uh, the question about whether marriage even needs to be a man and a woman, does gender even matter? Isn't love the most important characteristic, the defining characteristic? We could go in that direction, we're not going to so much today. Our culture has largely dispensed with the idea too that um, an openness to children is somehow in the essence or in the, is somehow necessary um, to marriage. 
That's another direction that we could go in. We're not so much going to do that today. You'll probably be able to join the dots um, as to how uh, today's stuff influences those things, inform those matters, but fair warning, I'm not aiming to say everything. Very happy to have a conversation afterwards if I haven't uh, touched on the thing that you really want to talk about. Let's do that. So here's my modest aim. Let's lay open these very precarious verses together. Let's shine the light on one dimension of human marriage that lifts our collective eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Can we just do that? Let's pray together as we come to Ephesians 5. Father God in heaven, we know that the gospel challenges us, that it's supposed to. We know that it challenges and it stretches, it calls for change, change of attitudes and hearts and action. Father, we know that when Jesus walked the earth, that that's exactly the pattern he laid down, calling on people to change but also giving them a safe place to come to himself so that change might be possible, it might be meaningful, it might be lasting. Father, we also know that Christ's primary challenge, if I can put it this way, his sternest, his harshest, his most blunt words came to those in power and those full of pride. And so, Father, we ask, would you please, by your word to us in Ephesians, confront us, in our power and pride. Not the person sitting next to us, us. Call for change, O God, change that glorifies you in our thinking, in our action. We recognise and confess the damage and the harm that's been done over the years by sloppily applying passages like these. And so we ask for an extra dose of your wisdom and humility today. And Father, we pray for the marriages amongst us this morning. Whether we're here as a married person or not, we pray that marriages amongst us would be strengthened and stretched under your tutelage today and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, here are the verses that we know that we need to get to sooner or later this morning. Uh, From verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Saviour. Now, people often point out, don't they, that, no, you need to read the verse, that verse in light of the verse beforehand, verse 21, uh, which is certainly true, submit to one another, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, in that verse, Paul speaks well, to all Christians, doesn't he? Men and women, husbands and wives, boys and girls, um, sons and daughters, slave and free, whoever you are. And pretty obviously, there is this mutual due humility that is supposed to characterise, um, well, our actual relationships in all of life. But that doesn't erode verses 22 and 23, does it? Um, as if you could equally say, husbands should submit to wives. In fact, verse 22 and 23, on my reading of it, uh, just the way that the passage seems to flow, those verses are giving examples, are they not, of how that humble mutual submission is supposed to look in the relationships of life. And uh, to go one step further down in verse 31, a little bit further down the passage, Paul cements the wife-husband dynamic back into the fabric of creation. He appeals there, do you remember, to the story of Adam and Eve which kind of ties this wife-submission-husband-headship thing 
back into God's original prototype for mankind. So it seems that we can't, at least we can't easily squirm out of this one. If you were hoping that perhaps there was an interpretive loophole by which we could escape the trickiness of this topic, a translation matter or something like that, not this week, I'm afraid, folks. Now, guys, for some of us, these verses, they confuse us. You know, I thought Jesus held women in such high regard. He did and he does. For others of us, they're distressing verses. Um, For some of us, they evoke very dark experiences in our past or memories. Perhaps some have made up our minds that Paul just got it wrong or that this bit isn't the Word of God after all, it can't be, um, or whether it is or not, we just can't live like that and so you've placed these verses on something of a blacklist um, in your life and you'd rather not think about them. May I appeal to us today, please let's take a step back together within Ephesians to see these verses in context, uh, to look at them hopefully with fresh eyes, to hear Paul, to hear God's Word to us on its own terms. I believe that there's a real danger, if you're someone who's made up your mind already about these verses, and by which I mean against these verses, um, there's a real danger that you've made up your mind based on a misunderstanding and that, if that's your case, that would be a real shame. Like you've read a newspaper headline and you've settled your posture about whatever it's going to say, um, whatever Paul or God has to say on the matter, um, you've read the headline when actually the article has a whole lot more to it. Okay, um, so come back with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 1. There is so much more depth and colour and, and substance and nuance here if we see it in its context. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, would you please? Here's the step back. Paul paints a picture for us, get this, of nothing less than the entire flourishing Christian life, brothers and sisters. He's not out to buttonhole women or men or wives or husbands for that matter. Take a look, Ephesians 5 verse 1, let's roll it right back to there, be imitators of God therefore, as dearly loved children, he means loved children of the Lord, be imitators of God therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. All right, so let's roll it back to there. And notice a few things. Notice he writes to all Christians, apparently they're as equals, doesn't he? He writes, uh, he calls for their whole lives, um, apparently without qualification or limit on what can be um, asked, and he grounds it all in who they are. Did you notice those three things? He writes to all the Christians in Ephesus, that's just implied, Uh, it's not just wives here or husbands, he demands their entire lives for God, you know, be imitators of Him, live a life of love and then notice thirdly for Paul, here's who they are, read it again with me, verse 1, be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a similar thought down in verse 8, so let's uh, skim down there now to verse 8, live as children of light Um, and verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord, there's our identity and what it's supposed to look like in our lives. Verse 14 has a slightly different picture actually, verse 14, we're kind of like groggy morning people um, as we become Christians. Verse 14, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you, here comes the call on your life, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, 
but as wise and down in verse 17 understand what the Lord's will is. So here's the thing, here's the picture that he's painting before our very eyes, ladies and gentlemen, what you are is children of the Lord. So how you live, well, that's up to him how we live. Figure it out, chase down his will. What you are, you're children of light now. So how you live, well, be very careful how you live. Um, Live a life of love, learn from Jesus, find out what pleases God, imitate Him. What you are is people coming alive, people waking up to the life that God would have in store for you uh, and has designed for you, so how you should live, well, it's going to look different to the way that you've lived in the past, now that you're spiritually awake. And we don't have time for all of it now, but I've got to tell you, the picture, at least as it starts, it looks so good. Look at verse 19. Uh, the, the, the colour of the language here, speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All I'm trying to say is, the Christian life, as Paul paints it here, in the broadest outline for men and women and husbands and wives and boys and girls and yes, even slaves and slave masters, it is not dour or sour or dismal or oppression, it is good, isn't it? It's singing, it's joy, it's colour. So when we hit verse 21, verse 21, submit to one another, Christians, out of reverence for Christ. My point is, I think we're supposed to have in mind joyous people, glad in the Lord, desirous of not just peace in our lives, but with an eagerness to put one another first. Eager to submit to one another, uh, to put one another first in life. And then the trouble is, verse 22, suddenly we hit the texture of what that needs to look like. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Let's change gears. Would you come on a little journey with me, please? Ladies, particularly... Would you come on a little journey with me, please? Um, I'd like you to step into a scene that I hope is familiar to you. I'm sure it is familiar to you. It's not a church scene, it's somewhere different entirely. Two scenes, in fact. The first one, moment number one. Can you please recall for me how you felt the last time that you walked in to a hair salon? And remember that there? Can you picture it there? Right, just as you're walking in, you're just about to go through the doors. Maybe you've got to push it open. Maybe it's the kind of, you know, slidey ones, whatever it is. Can you picture the moment? And it, I need it to be a positive experience. So if you had an awful experience last time, forget about that one, right? The last time you were happy with it and you were walking in to the hair salon. Now, if your hair's not totally your thing and, you know, it could be, it doesn't matter. It could be uh, one of those spa places. I don't even know what happens there. It could be nails. It could be massage. It could be a tan or a wax or goodness knows. But I understand hair. So I'm going to talk about hair. All right. Can you picture the moment though as you're going in? How did you feel? This is the question. How did you feel the moment that you walked in? Confronted, no doubt by a stylist, can you see him there or her, can you see him there with his immaculate hair, it looks almost alive, so trendy, just looks fabulous, you know, that person there. 
confronted by that person, and then there's you standing there with your before hair. Do you see what I mean? So it's, how are you feeling? I'm guessing it's a little bit of a mix, actually. It's a mix of self-conscious, deflated, maybe a little shame that I let it kind of get like this. But on the other hand, hopeful, because you're in the right place. You're where you need to be to become a little bit more fabulous like them, do you see? Now, moment number two, okay, that's moment number one. Moment number two, fast forward with me just a little bit. Once they've done their wash and their cut and their colour and their style and their dry and their little zhuzh here and their puff of magic there, I don't really understand much of that. Once you've stood up and dusted off, once you've paid the bill, um, try to forget about that bit, now you're about to step out the door, that same door, You've already caught a few furtive little glimpses of yourself in the mirror, um, swanning from the counter to the front door, do you see? How is the feeling as you step out of that door? As you take those first steps, a new woman with the hair and the look, with the shoulders back, with the confidence up, can you feel it? It feels different, doesn't it? Um, Whereas before, perhaps before, you'd, you'd have felt almost embarrassed to see that friend, do you know the one? Gosh, she always looks spectacular with her hair. You'd have felt embarrassed to see her, for her to see you before you'd gone in. But now, now, now you hope you see her. You hope she comes up the streets. As a matter of fact, you you hope everyone sees you. You might even get a coffee and sit at a table out on the street so that anyone who comes by who vaguely knows you might even holler out to them. I'm here, it's me, look, spectacular me in all my splendor. You get the point, okay. (laughs) Would you please take a look with me down at verse 25 now. Get a load of the task that God has given husbands, your husband, if you are married here today. Uh, Verse 25, read it with me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, What? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself, that is to Christ, as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives um, as their own bodies, and it goes on. Just hold those words there. Radiant church, presented without stain or wrinkle, not a blemish, not a blot or a blotch. Now, imagine for a moment, you know, in our body-crazed kind of culture, if Jesus offered this kind of beauty treatment for your bodies. If he set up a beauty salon downtown in the city there, um, with these kinds of promises, radiant, lovely, glowing, um, de-wrinkling, you, you have not a wrinkle in sight, um, uh, blemish-removing, cleansing. Well, these are the promises, aren't they, that our beauty products that sit on our shelves, they're the promises that those products make, shame that they don't deliver. They'd be lining up around the street, wouldn't they? If Jesus set up shop in town with this kind of promise for your body... They'd be lining up out the door and around the street and around the corner uh, with uh, enthusiastically, willingly, ravingly, they would, can I use the word, submit themselves to his expert care of them 
and they'd pay for the privilege. But, says Ephesians, no, no, this is for your souls. Dare I put it like this, asks Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the Welsh preacher, dare I put it like this, Jesus, the beauty specialist, will have put his final touch to the church. The massaging will have been so perfect that there will not be a single wrinkle left. She, the church, will look young and in the bloom of youth, with colour in her cheeks, with her skin perfect, without any spots or wrinkles, and she will remain like that forever and ever. Not physically, brothers and sisters... No, spiritually, morally, in our souls and character and life. But ladies and gentlemen, Paul writes these words, not for Jesus to remind him of his task, no, he writes them for husbands. He writes not a treatment plan for her body, but a prescription for her soul. Love your wife. Give yourself up for her to the end that she might be spiritually radiant, her fullest her most beautiful inner self, the woman that Christ designed her to be, would have her to be, one day we'll see that she becomes. Now, let's get practical. Let me probe at just three things here. So, we'll go sort of to the side for a moment to to, um, tease out some application. Three different headings. First one, number one, husbands, we've got to refocus. How are we going here, really? Here are a few things that Jesus never said. Jesus never said, my church spiritually needed me, but I never made it my priority. Jesus never said, my people were struggling and they were failing, but you can't expect me to give up everything for them. Jesus never said, well, when I stopped feeling respected by my church, I guess I just stopped trying. Guys, we've got to look, don't we, at what she's entrusted us with. We've got to look, don't we, at what God has entrusted us with in this particular relationship for those of us who are married. She's our life's work. No, she's not our whole life's work as if there's nothing else for us to be doing and nothing else for us to be getting up to um, in our lives. Yes, there's more to life, Of of course there is, but even so, she's my life's work. And this week, that reality, that um, that, um, burden has come in on me again. My wife's spiritual beauty before the Lord falls in some measure to me. She's entrusted to my care. And the question comes in on me, will she be a better woman for having lived her life with me? Will she be a better woman spiritually, in her character, in her soul, for having lived this year with me? Will she be a better woman for having lived this month, this week? How about today? Um, I'm reluctant to get too specific just because our marriages um, are each so different, so unique. There's a, there's a different little pattern to the way that we each live this out and, and that's rightly so, we're different creatures Um, But let me venture at just two really simple little suggestions to maybe help us tease out what it might look like in practice. First, if your wife is right now struggling to find the time to spend in God's Word and prayer, prayer, okay, that happens from time to time, different seasons of life, different stages. My application is, husbands, do what it takes to fix that, won't you? Is that an obvious application from here? 
Uh, if she needs kid-free time, well, fix it. If she needs quiet to actually be able to concentrate and pray, make it happen. Right? You're going to need to tease out the specifics for your context. I've just painted a little picture, I suppose, reflective of mine. Um, she will need to be willing to take you up on those offers as well, won't she? That's kind of how the dance works, I think. Second practical little su suggestion, still to husbands, still refocusing. Second practical suggestion. I found this um, very helpful from Christopher Ash. Christopher Ash has written a marvellous book on marriage called Married for God. Excellent. You should definitely read it if, um, uh, if that's your thing. Uh, and he calls it, he, he's got this suggestion he calls the crucifixion audit that he asks husbands to think about. And we ask it like this, have I lain down my life for my wife today? You see the pattern of Jesus in that? Have I lain down my life for my wife today? Or you could ask it before the Lord at the beginning of the day, you'd have to rephrase it a little bit, will I lay down my life? to see her flourish in the Lord today. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, number two, second practical little area to tease this dance uh, out a little bit. Secondly, two fears, um, more for wives this time. Number two, uh, if you take a look at verse 22, sorry, 24, verse 24, I think there are two scary words in there, aren't there? Not just one, I think there are two scary words. The first one, it's the obvious one, isn't it? Submit. And ladies, that is scary, not just because it makes you vulnerable, it does. Um, it's scary because he's a sinner, am I right? You're not married to Jesus, <laughs> Christian marriage is a dance performed by two imperfect people. So for this to work, there's going to have to be forgiveness and grace and you kind of feel that up front, don't you? And may I say, in some circumstances, you may need more than that. You may need escape at times or help. You may need to get safe. And there is a time and a place and a circumstance for those things as well. These verses should never create a hovel for abuse or sweep it under the carpet. And if you need help in that, then I, I hope your church leaders are people that you're able to come to. Um, yep. But I said there are two scary words. It's that last verse, last word actually, in verse 24. Take another look. I think the, the last word is, is a scary one as well. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In everything, I just want to point out, by everything, I take it that it's talking about everything in the sphere that he's been talking about, that is, everything to do with figuring out how to live as children of God, figuring out the Christian life together, striving after the radiant beauty of a life lived before the Lord. Uh, Kathy Keller makes a fantastic point here. Uh, you remember, you know how I quote from Tim Keller all the time? Well, here's his wife, Kathy, brilliant woman. Assuming the role of headship, she says, assuming the role of headship is only done for the purposes of ministering to your wife and family, oh husbands. He, the husband, doesn't use his headship selfishly to get his own way about the colour of the car they buy, who gets to hold the remote control, 
and whether he has a night out with the boys or stays home to help with the kids when his wife asks him. Some men, she says, unaware or unwilling to assume this servant leader role, believe that simply being male brings entitlement with it. I think sometimes we we do have that notion that he's the boss and so he gets his way in absolutely everything and I just want to say I think that's a sloppy reading of the text actually and it's selfish husbanding to boot and it's not the kind of husbanding that Christ has patterned for us. Right, super quickly, third little way to tease this out, third area to probe practically husbands. Um, I get that also your wife, shock horror, she's not perfect either. All right, I said it's a dance of two imperfect people. And so does Paul, doesn't he? Because Christ died to make the church great, not because she was already great, right? It's stitched into the pattern there. I guess my caution here is simply this. You know, fellas, when you're at home and you clean the toilet, it's the first thing you've done all week, but you cleaned the toilet. All right, you, you, see, you see that bit where you then saunter out into the living room like you're some kind of hero. I just want to say, we don't get to act like the hero on those few occasions that we get this right. Do it not to be seen to be a hero, not just when she notices, not because she'll notice, do it because there is no better way to be her spouse. Her character, that is eternal. Her perfection, that is forever. So give yourself to that. Now, all right, that's enough with the, um, the practical kind of uh, little connections for now. Before we finish up, there is one last little thing that I want to explore here in Ephesians that lifts our eyes um, up to the heavenly again. Let me put it to you as a question. What is the mystery of marriage? What is the mystery of marriage? Can we take another look at the text? We've seen the dance that husbands and wives are called to hold one another in um, through life. We've seen the strange beauty, I hope, of its steps, but we've also felt, I suspect, the real challenge from both sides. Uh, But Paul says marriage still holds a mystery. So take a look. And may I say, for years... I've thought that Paul was basically saying this. I thought he was basically saying, husbands, you've got a body, this thing here, um, so love her the way that you love this thing here. I, I, I thought that was what it was saying, but I've actually realised Paul's logic is far more biblical than that. Um, he's not saying love her like, as if, just pretend that she's your body. No, his point is, before God, you two are one body, so love her as your body. You see what I mean? Now, take a look with me from verse 28. In this same way, verse 28 of Ephesians 5, in this same way, so just like Jesus, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2, and this is where it came together for me. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, one body, you might say. This, verse 32, is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. 
So here was my question. What mystery does marriage hold for us? What is the mystery of marriage? Paul tells us it isn't so much that a husband could muster the selfless courage to love a woman, to forgo his own wants for her, to seek her spiritual fullness and flourishing in life and that she might attentively and responsively and uh, and matchingly respond to his efforts in humility and grace and submission. No, no, he says. The real mystery is that in human marriage, even your human marriage, we see a little glimpse of what Christ gave for his beloved. That's the mystery of marriage, that we see Christ's love in action, uniting himself to his church. Your marriage, whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, by the way, your marriage is designed by the hands of God to show the world Christ's heart for sinners, that he'd give his life and lay it down to make us beautiful. So you, at your best, do you realise this? You put God's love on display. Now, are those the kind of marriages that we're showing to our children? Are those the kind of marriages that we are looking to start um, if we're unmarried but hopeful at this point? You can see, can't you, why we are called to marry um, in the Lord, so to speak. Why we're called to marry another Christian, can't you? Are those the marriages, no, let me put it this way, is that the Christ that our friends will see as they spend time in our family home amongst us, seeing us dance this dance through life together? Well, to close, um, I'd like to, to paint a little picture. Um, maybe it's a bit of a silly one. I don't know, but there it is. It comes from Christopher Ash again. Here he goes. He says, Some years ago, I read of a dispute in Britain between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. Okay? Sounds boring, doesn't it? Inter- interdepartmental disputes. Well, take a listen. Uh, between the Foreign Office and the Treasury... The argument was about which British ambassadors would be provided a Rolls Royce for their official duties in a foreign capital. The Treasury, unsurprisingly, wanted these wonderful cars restricted to a few, perhaps Washington, Moscow and Paris. The Foreign Office argued for many more and I love, says Ash, I love their reasoning. Most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain, they said. But when they see this magnificent car gliding through their streets with the Union flag on the bonnet, they'll say to themselves, I haven't been to Britain. I don't know much about Britain. But if they make cars like that there, then Britain must be a wonderful place. In a similar way, says Ash, I'd like to think that men and women may say to themselves as they watch a Christian marriage, I've never seen God. Sometimes I wonder if there is a God. But if he can make a man and a woman love one another like this, if he can make this husband show costly faithfulness when, frankly, there is nothing in it for him, well, then he must be a good God. And if he can make this wife uh, uh, grace, give this wife grace to submit so beautifully with such an attractive, gentle spirit under terrible trials, then again, he must be a good God. And Ash concludes, if you are married or preparing for marriage, pray that others may be able to say this of you in the years ahead. Shall we pray? Father, where on earth do we find the resources to live the life that you've called us to? 
Our marriages bear precious little resemblance to Christ's self-giving, to his self-abandon. He willingly submitted to you, O Father. He willingly threw his life at the salvation of his church. O God, there is none on earth to whom we can go for that kind of love. We look to you. God, repair us. Mend us. When there's nothing left in the tank, fill us. When we stumble, carry us, pick us up. Teach us, O Lord, as husbands, as men, indeed as fellow Christians, married or not, of the lofty call of Christ-likeness. Teach us, O Lord, as wives, as women, as fellow Christians, whether we're married or not, actually, to strive after Christ-like humility and, yes, even submission. O God, may we be the richer and the better and the more beautiful in your eyes for the influence that we have on one another in all this. May we learn to repent of our evil, for depriving one another of love patterned on the cross and may we learn to forgive, forgive as God in Christ you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we ask it, Amen.